Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. We are in week two of a series called Different Kind of Church. And what we're doing in this series is we're journeying through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote almost half of what we have today is the New Testament. And this letter was probably written about 60 AD. And in this letter, Paul includes a lot of content in regards to church unity, church leadership, the vision of the church. And so when we get back to this vision of the church, what we might discover is that the vision that was initially intended for the church and what we now know today as the church, they might might be just a little bit different. And so we're journeying through together to see what is God's intention or what was his intention for the church when he got this whole thing started through the movement and following of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today if you want to follow along. And I'm going to start right in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul writes this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What Paul reminds us of here in this verse is that in Christ Jesus, there are good works prepared for each and every one of us. There is a purpose designed for each of us individually, and there's a purpose for the church as a whole collectively, that there are good works in store that Christ prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And in light of that concept and idea today, if you're taking notes, the title of today's message is Initiate. Because if Jesus really has good works in store for us to do, then we should constantly, as the church, be people who are initiating, be people who are moving forward, and be people who are starting conversations, starting movements, and initiating the movement of Jesus in the world. Have have you ever noticed that in conversations, oftentimes we actually prefer to respond as opposed to initiate? I don't mean just starting a conversation in general. I mean more so conceptually within the context of conversations. We will wait to hear somebody's opinion on something before we reveal our opinion on something especially if it's a if it's an issue that raises a lot of tension but this even happens in dumb things like with movies you know you go up to your friend hey did you see the new Godzilla versus Kong movie and they'll say yeah i saw it and then you'll say i saw it as well and then there will be an awkward moment for just a few moments and you just kind of stand there and one of you goes yeah so uh, what did you think of it and you want that person to reveal their opinion before you reveal yours because what if you might disagree with one another and your response is predicated on their response and you will change what you actually thought of the movie based off of what they had to say because heaven forbid we ever have a disagreement with somebody. Some of you know what I mean. We've all probably done this before. Maybe not with something as stupid as movies, but we've done this before. We wait for somebody else to go out on the limb. We wait for somebody else to reveal their opinion and perspective on something. And so what we do is we, we wait for them to reveal and then our response is predicated on whatever it is that they said because we don't want to have a disagreement. Unfortunately, I think that this form of conversation has also come into the church world as well. That there are times when we as the church, we discuss things with society in the surrounding world in the same way. We let others go first and then we as the church decide to respond to whatever is going on around us. We say, what exactly is going on over here? Let's get some context and then eventually we'll respond. And in some ways, that's a good thing. We are trying and attempting to be relevant. We want to be a part of 
of the conversation that's happening in the world. But sometimes I believe that God has actually called us and wired us to do good works in Jesus Christ, that we would be the ones who are initiating, that we are the ones who would be pioneers, and we would be the ones who lead the way forward. That we would not just be sitting around all of the time wondering, how can I respond to this movement? How should we respond to that movement? But we should actually be the ones who are starting and initiating movements. There's a, there's a really famous uh, professor, author, atheist by the name of Sam Harris. I listened to a number of his lectures. Some of you may know who he is. He's a part of a group of people called the New Atheists. And while he has a completely different worldview than me, clearly, because I'm up here talking about belief in God, I actually respect a lot of the content that he puts out because he's a really thought-provoking individual. And one of the things that he said in his critiques of Christianity is that from his perspective, the church has never been a movement that self-corrects. From his perspective, the church has never been a movement that says, hey, we're, we're going to self-correct. We notice this is a problem. We're going to change it. From his perspective, church typically follows society, specifically when it comes to issues of racial justice or justice in general. Now, while I would disagree with Harris's perspective overall, I do think that there's some validity to consider that from an outsider's point of view, looking in that the church has not been always great at self-correcting. And that's a point of us to kind of be reflective on. I mean, I even know that's been in my own life as well as a believer. Sometimes I'll say, I'm just going to wait to see how somebody else responds to this, and then I'll kind of formulate an opinion. But we as the church, we should be at the forefront. We should be the people who are constantly initiating the good work that Christ has called us to do. Because when, when we just stand back and we, we are always responding and we're never initiating, we're not actually walking in faith. Because to walk in bold faith means that I'm going to step out on a limb. I'm going to say something that might be a little bit risky. I'm going to do something that might not necessarily be accepted right away. But I know that God has told me to do this. I know that God has told us to do this. So we are going to step out and we are going to initiate. And instead of following society, we are going to be a movement where society starts to follow us. That we've been designed to initiate and not just respond. There's a... I was thinking about this. This is going to sound so silly to some of you, and some of you are like, I, I'm going to love this. I, I want us to be like Batman, and I know that sounds so silly, but there's this great moment in the Dark Knight movie, the one with Christian Bale and Heath Ledger. It's like the best movie ever made, to be quite honest with you. And I know I said Bill Murray's the best actor ever, and he's not in that movie, but it's still a great movie. But anyways, the, the, the Dark Knight, and there's this scene where, where the Joker and, and Batman are in, are in this area, and the, and the Batman is interrogating the Joker, and the Joker looks at Batman and says, there's no turning back. You've changed things forever. I want the church to be a movement that is such a juggernaut for good, that is such a juggernaut for hope and life and love and initiating that the enemy starts chirping in our head and saying, there's no turning back. You've changed things forever. That the enemy starts getting in our minds in such a deep way that he's, he's or trying to get into our minds, may I say, and trying to get us to question what we've done because we've taken such bold steps of faith. That's who the church should be. That we should be changing society. That we should be initiating difficult conversations and initiating hope in such a unique and powerful way that the enemy comes along and says, you've changed things forever. And you start to wonder, am I doing the right thing? And you say, no, you better believe I'm doing the right thing because Jesus told me to do it. There's a good work in store for us. So what is it that we, we can initiate when we look at Ephesians chapter two? Well, the first thing is this, initiate unity. We should be the movement that is initiating unity 
over and over and over again. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul is very clear about something. He levels the playing field. He says, every one of us is dead in sin. Every single one of us. And so he levels the playing field and says, We're, we are all on the same level here. And then in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Well, what is that saying? Every single one of us is dead in sin, but every single one of us is also in need of grace. And there's a gift of grace that's available to every single one of us in Christ Jesus. He levels the playing field. He says this movement of Jesus, it's an invitation of grace to every single human being. And we're all in need of this grace. And then in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, he starts to deal with an interesting issue because, you see, there was a group of people in this time period, they were, they were faithful Jewish people who were following the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, you had to, as an outward appearance of holiness, uh, as, a, as a gentleman, be circumcised. And, these, and these, these particular gentlemen came along to the Gentiles who are following Jesus, and they're saying, hey, you now also need to be circumcised. And they said, no, we are adult men. That is painful. You're not doing that to us. Because they would do it with a rock, all right? Just think about that. Now let's move on. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, he addresses this. That's not necessary. They don't need to be circumcised because the work of Christ is enough. But this is what religion does. Religion sets up a construct where it's you do enough good things so that you can try to get close to God. But the way of Jesus is I have come for you. Jesus came for humanity. The, the way of Jesus is that Jesus has come for us. The way of religion is here's what you have to try to do to get to God. And what's funny is, is we set up religious constructs that don't even believe in God in our, in our society. We, any type of where there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And in this in-group, we are better than everybody else. We're smarter than everybody else. Everybody else is a moron because they're not doing what we do. You are setting up a religious construct where you are doing more good than everyone else and everybody else isn't quite as good as you. So those religious constructs of the good people and the better people, those things exist in church and outside of church. Some of us, the goal is God in a religious construct to get to God, missing that God has come for us. Or some of us within those religious constructs, it's there's a goal, there's, there's, a, there's a level, there's a, there's a label, and I'm going to get to this label, and there's this in-group, and the people who aren't in this group, well, they're just not as good as us, or they're not as smart as us, or they're not as wise as us, or they don't know what we know, or they don't see what we see. Religious constructs exist everywhere, and religious constructs, they encourage division. The way of Jesus encourages unity, and so we should be the people who are initiating unity. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16, after he addresses the whole circumcision thing. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Keep that up. I'm going to stop for just a moment. How many of you know that to experience genuine unity and to have peace within unity, you actually have to have a confrontation or a conflict? For you to experience genuine peace, conflict and confrontation have to occur at times. So for example, in the way of Jesus, Jesus had to confront sin so that we could have peace with God. For, 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 for unity, for peace to come, conflict has to happen. But what we like to do sometimes is we'll go to maybe, let's say, 
a gathering with friends or a family gathering, and there's one person there who's always a little bit on edge, so we always have a separate family meeting or a separate friendship meeting before we get together and say, please don't bring this up in front of this person because they will snap if you bring it up. And we think what we're doing is we're having a conversation of making peace, but no, what what people would call that is actually peacekeepers. And what you're doing is you're putting everybody else in a place of tension just for the sake of that one person because nobody wants to confront them and bring true peace. You know what I mean? Everyone, oh, don't bring that up around them. They'll snap. And so, so to create a fake and a false sense of peace, we avoid conflict. We avoid confrontation. But for true peace to occur, confrontation has to happen. It doesn't have to be in front of everybody. It could be to the side. It could be one-on-one. But confrontation has to happen for peace to occur. And so for us to be able to have conversations of unity that lead to peace, sometimes we have to confront some things in other people that we may not like or maybe even confront some things within ourselves that we don't like. Amen? So he made his peace. Who made both groups. Here's what Christ did. He made both groups. The group that was trying to say, hey, you should be circumcised. You should be. He said, no. He took, Jesus took both groups and turned them into the one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having us put to death the enmity. So he's saying, where you guys once saw two groups, there is now one group in Christ Jesus. You see, where where religion says here's what you have to do to get to God, and then you might get to come together. The way of Jesus, Jesus says, here's what I've done to get to you so that you can come together. Jesus came for us so that we can come together. Where religion creates hierarchies, the way of Jesus creates hope. Hope for every single person. And we as the church get to initiate unity and get the privilege of being that beacon of hope. We should be the example of unity where every person, no matter race, background, no matter socioeconomic status, we come together as one in Christ because Christ came for us. We should be initiating unity. We should be a movement that is without envy, that is without jealousy, that is void of deceit, that is void of hate, that is void of racism, and that is void of division. Those things must not exist amongst the church. We must be unified. We must be a unified people. And so we will come together as the church and we will say, we will not bow down to the religion of social media. We will not bow down to the religion of biased media. We will not bow down to the religion of political parties. We will not bow down to the religion of wokeness. We will not bow down to the religion of ideologies. We will not bow down to the religion of cultural Christianity. We will not bow down to those hierarchies because where the world wants to divide, Christ intends to unite. And so we say we are going to bring others together. It might be difficult. It might be a little uneasy. We might have to say some things at first that make us put us out there a little bit. But we as the people of God are people who step out in faith. We put ourselves out there and we initiate unity because that's what Christ did. And so that's who we are going to be. 
We initiate unity. Uh, this, I have this quote uh, from Lynn Coick in her commentary on Ephesians where she says this uh, on this passage. She says, Paul insists that the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile is also the reconciliation of Gentile and Jew. Neither group is privileged, for both are changed as they become a new body altogether. Nobody's privileged in this whole thing. That's why Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 6 that God shows no favoritism. There's no favoritism. There are those of us who are following Christ or those who are not following Christ, but Christ came for us so that we could all come together. We can be the people. We get to be the people who have those difficult conversations and we will initiate unity. Secondly, initiate communication. We as the church should be the people who initiate communication. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of sitting around and waiting and hoping that people will one day find God, we should be the people who are bringing God to other people. Instead of sitting around, oh, maybe they'll hear about a Sunday service one day and they'll walk in. That would be great. If you're here for the first time and you just heard about us, thank you so much for coming and joining and having the boldness to say, I'm either gonna tune in online or I'm gonna come here by myself. That takes a lot of courage to do that. But we as the church should not be relying on that. We should be bringing people into this. We should be pursuing other people and bringing them into this community of Christ. We should be initiating communication. Initiate, initiate, initiate. This is why, here's a little plug. This is why on June 13th, we're doing the New Story Summer Block Party right here in the backyard from 1 to 3 p.m. on Sunday, June 13th. Sunday, June 13th, write that down. The New Story Summer Block Party. And we're gonna have, we're gonna have a pig roast. Uh, we're gonna have some great barbecue. There's gonna be a bounce house, volleyball, all these games. It's a community event and we're reaching out to our community and we're gonna bring God to people and not just hope that people will come and find God. We're gonna, bring, we're gonna do what Jesus did for us and we are going to bring the conversation. We're gonna initiate communication. We're bringing out invites and this is your hint to invite other people because we are initiating communication communication. And the reason we do that is because that's what Jesus did for us. Ephesians 2 verses 17 through 18 says this, and he came. Jesus didn't say, hey, come to me. No, he came to us. And he preached peace to you who were far away. He preached peace to sinners and tax collectors and those who felt like they were far from God. And he preached peace to those who were near, the most religious people who thought, oh, because of what I do, I should be close. No, he came and preached peace to both groups. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. The reason we initiate communication is because we want to create access points to Jesus. We want to make it easily accessible for people to find Jesus. That's our role as the church. Now, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, when we start following Jesus, Ephesians 4, we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The standard is high in walking with Jesus and the calling that he has for us, but the access point to find Jesus, that should not be difficult. That should not be hard. We get the opportunity to initiate communication. Earlier this week, I was talking to my wonderful wife, Kim, and she keeps this five-year journal. And so she'll say, hey, on this date, last year or two years ago, we were doing blank because she writes everything down in this five-year journal. And this past week, she shared with me that last year on May 13th, we were meeting with our group, the founders that we call here at New Story Church. It's myself, 
Kim, Neil Friedman, Lindsay Friedman, Aaron Wilizinski, and Joy Collada. So we were meeting together and we were talking about what are we supposed to do as a church? Because uh, we're in this thing with COVID. It seems like everything is shut down. We have not, we had not even secured a space yet to lease for the fall. And our, our plan was to launch in the fall. And I was meeting and talking with friends all over the country who were planting churches and they were, most of them, postponing their church plants till 2021 because they were planning to meet in movie theaters or public schools, and all of those things were closed. So they just didn't know how to plan, and we didn't know what to do. And our plan was to have monthly gatherings in March, April, May, and June, and then in July and August start doing outreach events so we could let our community know, hey, we're initiating a conversation. We are here for you. But we're meeting in May, and we're thinking, we don't know what we're going to be able to do. We don't know if anybody's even going to let us do an outreach project. We, we were wondering, how do we, and we, we, we came to a, an agreement together. We don't want to postpone the church. God has called us to start this church. And then we were wondering, okay, well, when could we do this? How could we, because I'll let you know a little. So when you go to church planter trainings, which I went to a couple of, they always tell you, you should start a church in September because that's when people go back to school or in January, because that's when people make New Year's resolutions, or around Easter, because people start going to church again around Easter. So for those of you who want to know how pastors think, and if they think like marketers, sometimes they do. So anyways, these are the three times that you should plan a church. And we were thinking, well, we don't want to postpone until January, because even if we can meet in person, opening something in the middle of January in Buffalo may not be the best idea in the world, because what if there's a snowstorm opening Sunday? And we thought, we don't know if we'll be able to meet in September, and we don't want to push it all the way to Easter because God has called us to initiate a conversation, to initiate communication. And so then Neil said, he goes, well, why don't we just start our church online in the middle of the summer? And this is like the biggest no-no in the church planting world. They tell you, do not start a church in the middle of the summer because everybody's on vacation. And I'm like, oh, well, we started going and we said, this seems like the right move. So we talked to another local church, Cornerstone Church, who's been very supportive of us, and we said, hey, can we come film online services at your church? We're just going to be online. Uh, Aaron, the genius, rallied a production team together. Joy got a worship team together, and we launched our church online in the middle of July. And opening Sunday, we had over 300 people watching online. A couple people gave their lives to Christ, and Aaron, I mean, it's, just, it's just crazy. It's unbelievable. But we did exactly what we weren't supposed to do. Aaron shared some stats with me earlier of how many people we reached and how many minutes people watched. It was something, I think like 3,000 total minutes were watched online or something like that. 3,000 views when we were just online. We had 3,000 views in total when we were just online. And we did something that we weren't supposed to do. We started in the middle of the summer. But sometimes if you're going to initiate, you gotta be willing to break some expectations. If you're going to initiate, you gotta be willing to break some rules. If you're going to initiate, you have to be willing to break some barriers and say, I don't know, I'm putting myself out there, but I know who you are, God, and I know what you've told me to do. And he will deliver and he will come through every single time. And so you might be saying, okay, how does this apply to me? How can I possibly initiate communication? Well, I, I love this quote from Andy Stanley. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I think sometimes we, we stand back from the good work that Christ has called us to do because we think, well, I can't do that for everybody. Or I, I just can't take on all. And he said, no, just start simple. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Because doing for one what you wish you could do for everyone is far better than doing nothing for nobody. Action is always better than an action. And we forget that the movement of Christ is that, a movement. 
He is moving in the world. New Story Church. We are joining God in the story that he is writing. And so we have to step up, do for one what you should. So, so what could you possibly do? Maybe initiate communication with that person who you work with that is always silent on the Zoom calls and doesn't really say anything to anyone and just looks miserable. And you're saying to yourself, oh man, this sounds like high school when you told me to go talk to that kid at the lunch table who no one was talking to. Well, unfortunately, as adults, we still don't get these social cues sometimes. Uh, but maybe initiate a conversation with that person who seems isolated and lonely and distant. Maybe it requires initiating communication in that difficult family situation that you know nobody wants to address, but you know that somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to speak up. And it's going to be really messy at first, but you know that the outcome will be worth it in the long run. Maybe it means just initiating with whoever it is that God has placed in your life and you've just been waiting for conversations to come to you, but God is saying, no, I've placed these people in your life for you to initiate communication, for you to initiate a conversation. Start asking yourselves questions like this. Who can I love today? Who can I show kindness today? Who can I serve today? And in doing that, you are initiating communication. And in doing that, you are creating access points to Jesus. We as the church together should be creating access to Jesus and initiating communication, and on an individual level, we have been given the opportunity to do that every single day, because just as Jesus initiated communication and came for us, we can initiate communication with the world around us. And lastly, initiate vision. We should be the initiators of vision. I don't, have you ever been to something before that you're like, whoever planned this, they clearly had no vision, this is a disaster. This is a mess. I just want to leave. How am I here right now? Is it socially acceptable for me to just get up and leave? I can't, for those of you, I feel like you get to a point in life, for those of you, maybe you could speak to this, who are over 65. If you get over 65, I feel like you can just leave things when you want to leave things. I've seen this happen before. Okay, I've lived enough life. I've had enough. I don't necessarily want to get old, but I can't wait to get to that point where it's socially acceptable for me to just leave something. I'm just going to go now. It's like that episode of Seinfeld when uh, uh, Jerry's uncle's just stealing things, and he's like, I'm a senior citizen. I forgot. I didn't realize it. Uh, I'm sorry. That was, but but I, I, I would, um, where was I going with this? Initi oh, yes, initiate vision. So you've been a part of something that just has no vision, and you're, I just want to leave. I just want to get out of this right now. Unfortunately, I've been a part of one too many of those things. Uh, and, and unfortunately, my name has been attached to those things before. In fact, I have ran events before that have absolutely no vision and no plan. When I was about 20 years old, I was leading a youth group in North Tonawanda. And somebody said, hey, you should do this event with your students. I did it with my students years ago. It's called the 30-hour famine. It's like, oh, that sounds like a really holy and righteous thing to do. Let's do the 30-hour famine, and, and we can fast and praise a student ministry for 30 hours. Uh, the majority of my group was middle school boys almost 20 middle school boys who showed up to the church for the 30-hour famine. Doing a 30-hour famine with middle school boys is not the best idea in the world. Uh, there was misery. There was swearing. There was vandalism, potentially, of the church happening within the church because I didn't have enough leaders to keep an eye on everybody. Uh, I, I thought, oh, I have enough juice and Gatorade and water to get us through this 30 hours. No, it was gone within an hour. I thought, I have some games planned. We can have a good time to pass the time on. The games were done in less than an hour. And I don't know, I, I, I was really trying to lead well, but fasting and just 
Praying with kids doesn't work for a long period of time sometimes. Uh, jokes start to be made that you're like, is this sacrilegious? I just don't know. I don't feel comfortable with this right now. But, but there were things happening. I ended up, I didn't think, oh, people might want to sleep. For, you know, it's 30 hours. I ended up sleeping on a concrete floor under a ping pong table. This is what was happening. And then the, the, the next morning in this 30-hour famine, it's through a whole program. It's a good organization. I don't, I, I, they're great, but I was not great. I did not plan. And you're supposed to get up the morning of, and there's just a few hours left in the famine. And you're supposed to go serve somewhere to, to kind of give this reminder of, hey, even when you have nothing left in you, God can still use you. And, and I didn't really plan for that either. And I thought, we, I was like, what, what should we do? It was pouring rain outside, and I'm walking up a street in North Tonawanda with a bunch of middle school boys picking up trash. And it's pouring rain. I think there was thunder, and we had be- and people were walking in puddles and picking. And the kids like, "Hey, there's a Tim Hortons. Can we go there?" No, we can't go there right now. And you, you, you should have seen the way these kids, how they ate this pizza once we finally got it in at the end of the 30 hours. Uh, it was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But, but, but what happens when you go to something and there's no vision and no plan? People become miserable. People become frustrated. People become discouraged. And right now in human history, I think that we're at a moment where people are looking back at this past year. Maybe something happened to you on an individual level. We all know on a collective level this year has been heavy for us. And to add that on to what you might be dealing with individually or, on, or in your own personal life, I feel as if humans are so exhausted right now. And they're wondering, I don't know where I'm going to get any vision to move forward. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. It feels like darkness has surrounded me. But this is the time for us as the church to step up. Because we have, built on, we have been built on something on someone who is immovable. His name is Christ Jesus, and he is our cornerstone. Yeah, amen. He is our immovable cornerstone. And because of him, we can always have a vision. We can be bursting with vision as the people of God because we have the King of kings and Lord of lords, and our faith is built on him. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. This is going back to what we talked about earlier with unity. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Law, the temple of God was built by the material of stones and pillars. But in this new way of living, the temple of God is built within the material of humans. That the Spirit of God comes together within the people of God, and we become the household of God. And we are built on the immovable cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And so when humanity comes to a point 
where we feel as if we're at the end of ourselves, where people are tired and exhausted and feel like they're running on empty. We can be filled in the Holy Spirit by the power of Christ Jesus, built on the immovable cornerstone that is Christ. And he has given us a vision to bring to the humans around us, to the world around us, even in a moment where it feels like we're out of vision. This is the church's time to stand up and to make some noise and to lead the way into what God is calling us to. I'm going to invite the band forward in this time. They're going to be closing us out here in just a moment. But just to get a little bit more practical, you might be saying to yourself, okay, how, what does this really look like to initiate with vision? What vision do I possibly have? Well, I want to go back to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Look, the grace of God, it is a gift of God. The reason we live out the reality of good works in Christ Jesus is not so that we can, you know, be, be more closer to God and, and build up a religious contract. No, the reason we live out these good works is because we've been transformed by grace. And his grace is so overwhelming. His grace is so full of love. His grace is so full of, full of power and forgiveness that we can't help but to live out a life of Christ-likeness. That this is a gift that we have received from God. And you might be saying, what vision could I possibly bring? I don't know if I can think of a more captivating vision than undeserved grace. I don't know if I can think of a more captivating vision than the opportunity that we have to bring a gift of grace to the world around us. And this grace is full of abundant life. It's full of forgiveness. It's full of hope that we can bring a message to people who feel like they're at their wit's end. And maybe it's just due to the situations around them or maybe they recognize I have done something horrible because as Ephesians 2, 1 says, we are all dead in our sin. And in that moment when somebody is at the end of themselves and they don't know if they can move on anymore. Maybe God has placed you in their life to show the grace to them that only he has for them. Or maybe you're here today and you're in that spot and you're in that moment. There is grace available for you. There is forgiveness available for you. There is restoration available for you in Christ Jesus. This is the vision we have to bring a vision of grace, which brings with it hope and unity and life and love and restoration in Christ Jesus. We get to bring that message, to say that we have been created to do good works, which means that we've been given life and purpose. We get to bring that vision to wherever it is that God has us, a vision of life and a vision of purpose, to live into the Christ-likeness and into the reality that Jesus has designed us to be, that Jesus is restoring the image of God within us. And when we begin to practice that and live in that, people will see Christ within us. That when you begin to walk in those good works, whether that's through the manifestation of using your spiritual gifts, or whether that's you just saying, I'm gonna show kindness to someone, I'm gonna show love to someone. When you begin to live in those good works and you're initiating communication, initiating communication, you might actually be in doing that the answer to someone's prayer. You might be the answer to the prayer that someone has been praying that they could just find hope, 
that they could just find restoration. And you coming into their life and bringing the presence of Christ to them could be the answer to their prayer. Or it could be the answer to someone else's prayer who has been praying for that person. We as the church, let's step up and stop responding and start initiating. Let's stop responding and start initiating. Let's become the movement where we are not following society, but society is following us. That we are breaking barriers and building a new future in doing that. That people will see that we are living such compelling lives for Christ that they cannot help but to be captivated into the way of Jesus. And we will start initiating when we initiate unity, when we initiate communication, and we initiate vision.